episode of Live from the Pat Conroy Literary Center here on the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. I'm your host, Jonathan Hout, the Conroy Center's Executive Director and Co-Editor of Our Prince of Scribes, Writers Remember Pat Conroy. Tonight, I have the great pleasure of talking to Tina McElroy-Anza and Walter S. Lloyd, co-editors of another anthology, the recently published book, Meeting at the Table, African-American Women Writers on Race, Culture, and featuring powerful, moving essays from more than a dozen contributing writers, including scholars, teachers, businesswomen, legal minds, a mayor, a bishop, a New York Times bestselling novelist, and a Disney princess. But before we get into discussing that particular pantheon of writers, let me tell you all a little bit more about our two guests, because they are quite impressive, as I have already seen. Tina McElroyanza is the author of five award-winning novels, including Baby of the Family, The Hand I Fan With, Ugly Ways, and You Know Better. In 2004, she founded the Sea Island Writers Retreat in her home state of Georgia, and she has taken the retreats around the country. In 2007, she founded Down South Press, which published her fifth novel, Taking After Madeir. Tina received the Baby More. Campbell Memorial Award from the National Book Club Conference, and she's also honored with the Stanley W. Lindbergh Award for her many contributions to the literary arts community of Georgia. She has contributed essays from Georgia to CBS Sunday Morning. In 2011, she was awarded with an honorary Doctor of Arts from her alma mater, Spelman College. She is now at work on her sixth novel and her first work of nonfiction, writing at her home on St. Simon in Georgia. Wanda S. Lloyd is the author of Coming Full Circle from Jim Crow to Journalism, a memoir published last year by New South Books, to which Tina wrote a beautiful foreword. A Savannah native, Wanda is a retired newspaper editor with experience at seven daily newspapers, including the Washington Post and USA Today. She retired from daily journalism in 2013 as executive editor of the Montgomery Advertiser, and returned to Savannah to become chair and associate professor of the Department of Journalism and Mass Communication at Savannah State University. Wanda was the founding executive director of the Freedom Forum Diversity Institute at Vanderbilt University, a program to train non-traditional students for professional newsroom careers. In 2019, she was inducted into the National Association of Black Journalists Hall of Fame. Another proud graduate of Spelman College, Wanda served on Spelman's Board of Trustees for nearly 20 years, and in 2016, Spelman awarded her an honorary Doctor of Humane Letters. Tina and Wanda, thank you so much for being on the podcast this evening. Welcome to you both. Oh, thank you. Hey, Jonathan. Thank you. We're excited to be here. I am so glad you all can do this. I've uh, I've gotten to meet Wanda once in person, and this is uh, not exactly her first time to uh, work with us at the Conroy Center. I'm so glad to have you back. Uh, I've said the word Spellman a bunch of times already, and I feel like we should not just leave that out there in the universe. I understand you two have quite the history with Spellman, and it's where your friendship begins. Could you talk a little bit about My that? My goodness. 
Yes, well, this is Tina. And uh, Wanda and I have been friends uh, for, for more than 50 years. We were freshman college roommates at Spelman College, which is a uh, uh, historically black uh, college at one of the HBCUs uh, in Atlanta, Georgia, in the Atlanta University system. And uh, it has a, a great uh, a tradition among African-American people. You know, you say Spelman and people sort of sit up and, and, and notice because we, we turn out Spelman women. Uh, so uh, I was, you know, 18, Wanda was 18, and uh, they put us together, Spellman did. We hadn't met before we, we met our first day in the uh, in the dorm room. And, you know, right from the beginning, you know, it, you could see it was just like a train wreck, you know, waiting to happen. You know, Wanda, when I got there, when I got to the Atlanta campus, Wanda had, had gotten there, and I think her parents maybe uh, had left already. And when I got to the, the uh, dorm room, I looked around, and she already had gotten curtains and matching bed spreads and had made her bed and set up her typewriter and there was there was a bed spread on my bed. And I was like, Wow, okay. I thought we maybe would go together down to, you know. So I should have known from the beginning she was a leader. And so uh, so Wanda and I were very much matched on paper. We were both from Georgia. We were both from middle class town in Georgia. Our parents uh were both uh, business owners, African American business owners, and uh we were English majors. It looked good on paper. But as I said, Wanda liked the one to open, I liked the one to close. Wanda was in the Glee Club, I was tone deaf. Wanda did her essays immediately and her assignments immediately when she got them on electric typewriter. I was playing bid with every night for my assignment. And Wanda would say, Tina, please, come on. I'm going to the library. Let's go to the library and get this, knock this out right away. And I go, oh, no, they're playing bid with down on somebody's room. I'll, I'll get it later. I'll get it later. And then she would say, the night before, I would be up all night long keeping her awake keeping her awake during the assignment. Wanda? Wanda, well, you want to respond to that? Well, I, I, I can't deny any of it. It's all true, Jonathan. <laughs> but, but I guess the best part is that we um, became closer friends after our freshman year. That was the first year. And I think about it, about the junior year. Of course, we were living in different different dorms and Mm-hmm. Tina had a different room. I, I had a room by myself because I was a resident assistant by junior year. But we became close friends, and I will tell you that we both got into journalism. I came to Spelman knowing that I wanted to go into journalism. I, I decided in at the end of 11th grade in high school in Savannah that journalism would be my life's work. Tina knew she wanted to write something, but she wasn't quite sure what she wanted to write or how she was going to get paid writing it. And I remember one day I went into her room. Jonathan, Jonathan. Hey, Jonathan and Tina, what Wanda really says is, I came there knowing I wanted to be a journalist. Tina just wanted to write. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. That's exactly you what know, happened. She, kind of, she <laughs> her hands in the air, you know, like little birds. So Tina just wanted to write. And, and Wanda actually was what? the person who steered me toward journalism. I did. I sat, you know, I sat, we sat on the side of her bed and, and I said, well, tell what do you like to do? And I said, have you thought about journalism? And so I introduced her to the professor over at Clark College across the street uh, where the journalism classes were held. We could take courses in the Atlanta University Center outside of Spelman and, and get, you know, get those credits for it. And I was already in the program and, and I introduced her to the program and she took all the classes that, that were available at the time. It was a brand new program. And she ended up being a journalist in the early part of her career. So we really have similar paths 
until she kind of veered off and decided she, you know, she'd write nonfiction. But we remained friends. Our husbands became friends uh, late after we got married. Um, we we liked doing some of the same things. We loved writing. We loved the the power of words. Um, and Tina would come to to whatever state. I lived in eight states throughout my career. And so whatever state I lived in at the time, Tina had a new book. We always had a book party for her, um, whether it was in our house or in, in the newspaper building or somewhere in the community. So th- that's kind of our, our path as friends and as colleagues. What does it take really to sustain a friendship over a 50-year period? I mean, it sounds like you two are such a perfect match from college onward, but but what's the what's the reality of maintaining a friendship over, over the formation of lives and, and movements across the country? What, what does it really come down to mm-hmm. for you two? What, what keeps you two together? You know, I, I think, think it's trust, Tina. right, Tina? It's trust, oh, trust for is, one thing. Trust is, trust is at, the, at the core of it. Um, mm-hmm. but I, I, I'm, I, one of the, you know, we talked about this a, a great deal, Jonathan, and, you know, and thought about it. I uh, believe that one of the reasons is we never lived in the same city. Uh, I, I, you know, I don't know. We love being close now, and we always say, as a matter of fact, uh, Wanda was going to the grocery store when I talked to her earlier, and I said, oh, good, I need some, I need a loaf of bread and some coffee creamer. And I said, wouldn't it be wonderful if you could just swing by here and we still lived in the same city? And so we fantasized about that, you know, I think our whole friendship. But I think it's worked well that we have had different experiences and lived in, you know, in, in different cities and always brought, had something new to bring back to the table. That may be it. We always had something new to bring back to the table. The table was like our sturdy friendship, but, you know, it gets stale. I think many friends grow apart, you know, just they're just different. They care about different things as they go, get older. Some have children and some don't, you know. I mean, there, there are all kinds of reasons uh, that, that friendships fall apart. And, you know, as, as they say, you know, it's either for a season, a reason, or a lifetime, and there aren't many mm-hmm. lifetime friends. Uh, and uh, Wanda's just my, you know, Wanda's my lifetime friend. She's, she's my right hand and my go-to. Um, we we talk a, a, a lot about. I've thought a lot about uh, really how we work so well together because this is the first time we well in, in working on your your memoir, not uh, Wanda. Mm-hmm. Was the first Tina time wrote we the really forward, as Jonathan said. Yeah. And I was, yeah. her, I was her, her cheerleader, you know, as we as we went on, because I was uh, so anxious for this book to get out, and I knew it was an important book, her memoir, and I, you know, I knew it would change lives and touch lives, and oh, and and help young women about, you know, give them some kind of, uh, you know, guide of how you you navigate this world, because she's navigating so well does, and contributing. Tina's, Tina's being modest. She was more than a cheerleader. She really was my writing coach. She was a person who helped me understand the difference in writing journalistically and writing uh, narrative nonfiction. You know, I sent her my first two or three chapters, and she took a look. She said, well, you know, you've got some good stories here, but you really still write like a journalist. I want you to stop it right now. Just stop writing like a journalist. You need to understand the difference. And so we had that conversation, and when I sent the chapters or part of the chapters back to her, she was uh, she was amazed. I mean, I got it. I I learned my lesson. Oh, I listened to what she had to. Yeah, um, and so I'm she I'm proud it. that that I happened. Got it and I'm gone. I got yeah. it. And I'm gone. After that, I, mean, I don't think I sent you many many chapters. After that, no. I think you know I just went off mm-hmm. running. I read them. Yeah. Mhm. Mhm. 
you would share something, you know, with interest, and we would talk about it. You know, you say, right. you, I'm writing yeah. about this particular part of my life. And um, our conversations were wonderful. I mean, I think we got to know each other at this stage of our lives very much in writing Wanda's book. Uh, you know, you think you, you know somebody for 50 years, and you think you know everything about them. And I discovered, Wanda, how much stuff did I discover while you were writing this book? I would say you did. Really? When? Yeah, that's the picture. Wanda is like Wanda is like a publisher's dream, an editor's dream. She keeps every single, every single important piece of paper, every um, oh gosh, every every photo, every uh, uh news clipping, uh, photos, uh, names of people who took the photo, the photo credit, all all of this. All of this, and and also she's done that with her life. She, you know the the photographs and the uh, family heirlooms and all the rest. She she's. Um, uh, but don't make it sound like I'm a pack rat because I'm really not a pack rat. I think the most important thing is knowing rat. what to keep and knowing what not to keep. And there are a lot of things exactly. that got thrown out. That's true. But there are That's things. That's true because yeah, you were an, right. an editor. I tell, Wanda, you, I, I tell uh-huh. young, yeah, I tell young writers and new writers all the time. You know, you you have to keep stuff and you have to know what to keep. But don't keep the junk. Mm-hmm. You know, keep the stuff that yeah. has information <laughs> on it. Keep the stuff that yeah. may have everything that has sentimental value doesn't need to be kept. That is a good Wanda, journalistic them, instinct. Wanda, Such a good archivist instinct to too. Go ahead, Tina. Go I ahead, love please. that word. That's one of my favorite words. Uh, <laughs> That's Wanda, a good word. Know, tell us. Yes, it's a good word, isn't it? It feels good in your mouth. It's like juxtaposition. That's a good oh, word, too. I like that. Yeah. I'm saying, yeah, when you say it, you know, you use your lips, and it's a real active kind of word. But, Wanda, tell tell the story about the cover of uh, of, of of Coming Full Circle and how you were how you yeah. were able to find well, the, it. Cu- the, the cover of Coming Full Circle is a picture of me and my 22-year-old self sitting on the copy desk at the Providence Evening Journal, which was my first um, newsroom where I worked. I worked there twice, once as an intern, and then I went back after we graduated and worked there for two years. And I was, um, I was going through a book, uh, a book of newspapers that I saved when I was on the faculty one summer for a summer program at Columbia University. And I and I was 22 years old. I was younger than all the students in the class that summer. Um, so we, I was the edit, I was the editor of the, the the lab newspaper that they put out. I was teaching them copy editing and you know some other editing tools. And we bound we we bound the newspapers. We put them in a book, so it was the size of a tabloid newspaper. So as I was writing Coming Full Circle, I went through that book just to see what I was doing that summer to see what stories. I would write in my memoir about that summer. And inside that book was this photograph of me sitting at the, at the copy desk in Providence, Rhode Island. And I just kind of reared back in my chair and I went, oh, my gosh, I think this is the cover of the book. I immediately scanned it, sent it to my publisher, and it ended up being the cover of the book. So a lot of people ask me, how in the world did you save that picture? I, I Fortunately, back in the day, Jonathan, they used to, mm-hmm. you know, we got – glossy prints of all the photographs that were taken from mm-hmm. the newspaper. And when someone took that picture of me, they stamped the back of it with the name of each photographer had oh his own goodness. stamp. And, <laughs> and it's still stamped on the back. So I immediately wrote a letter to the current editor of the paper, who was probably younger than, he probably wasn't born when I was at the newspaper, just to tell him that, you know, I, I was there 
here's a picture. Here's a copy of the picture. I just want you to, you know, give me permission to use the picture. Not only did he immediately give me permission, and we went through all the, you know, the legal paperwork to, to give me permission, but he wrote a column as soon as the book came out. You know, he got an early copy of the book. He read it, and he wrote a column informing the community that um, that I had this memoir and that stories from Providence were in it. So um, that's what happens when you say stuff, important stuff. You, you get to use it somewhere else. <laughs> that is yeah. the serendipity of, of discovery. It's a, it's a wonderful cover image, too, for coming full circle. And uh, that book oh. is, of course, the, the, the reason uh, we met. You were interviewed on South Carolina ETV, public TV, uh, by the river. Mm-hmm. Wonderful right. author interview show we produce right here in Beaufort. And I got to learn a little bit more about you and that book. And that has led me to invite you back a number of times because your story is just so empowering, I find. So, uh, yes. Thank you. I, lo- I love that cover. I think that cover is very indicative of the themes and, and the importance of that book. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, you know, you were talking it's, it's been a pleasure. Go ahead, Tina. I was just going to say we were talking about writing. And I was just thinking... Um, you were saying about the discovery of, you know, of that, that picture, photograph. And uh, the same thing happens in fiction. You know, you you find something that uh, I have a, a friend. You may know her, Mary Hood. Are you familiar with Mary Hood? She's a writer. Oh, I, uh, yes. I, I've, North Georgia. I've, you, you know I've Mary. I published okay. Mary Hood. Yeah, I published her last book. Actually. Have you? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, her, her, uh, yeah. It's a wonderfully small world in our South. Yeah, Good grief! I love Mary Hood. She was one of my. Um, uh, we were, I guess, we were publishing about the same, about the same time. So I was, she may have been a little bit ahead of me, uh, but she was my first real writer, writer friend. That we would write long letters to each other about writing, and uh, she's the person who told me Mary Hood is the person who told me that when you are writing and doing everything you're supposed to, doing research and uh, respecting your process and not letting other people interrupt, you know, all the things that you have to do to be a writer, she says you're in the state of grace and things come to you. Hmm. Isn't that wonderful? That's, that's beautiful advice, yeah. I don't think Mary Hood has ever written a bad sentence. She's just, uh, she's oh my just a remarkable writer. <clears throat> We've, Isn't she um, a beautiful writer? I, you know what? Is. I haven't talked to Mary in a couple of years, but, you know, in the last two weeks I was thinking about her because she wrote the, her short stories I really love. I think I love her short stories more than any of her, of her writing. But when, in her first book, that's how far she went. I don't, I don't know if that's how far she went or, or another book, but in her first book of short stories, uh, she wrote a story about a, a family member, a woman, an older like aunt in the family, and two things she said in it. One was that the the woman just you know would, t- would go for rides, you know, when she didn't, you know when somebody was going into town, and she said she would say she was she would not say she wanted she was just going along for the ride. She wrote she was longing for the ride. Mm-hmm. Isn't that wonderful? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Yeah, how far, so how far she went it was wonderful. Mm-hmm. And the other is that there was a, a woman, a mother in the story, in one of her stories, who was so insistent on not looking at anything negative that even when she saw a possum in the middle of the road and he was thinking, she would say, oh, he's just playing possum. 
And I said, well, you know, you know what? And we start talking about it, you know. And I said, you know, I'm feeling the same way, to tell you the truth. Um, you know, on top of grief, there was, you know, the grief of this country, I think. And for many of us, of uh, having seen so many young black people uh, and black men and, and women uh, killed at the hands of, of police in this country. And, of course, we had just uh, uh, witnessed George Floyd's murder. Right on, te- right on television, and so we were all raw, and there was, you know, the, the the demonstrations that were going on, um, and as I said, COVID had happened, and so we were all raw and 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 feeling feeling and if they say feeling some kind of way all the time, and so as we talked, I said, you know, I'm feeling the same way, and he said, well, we know it's because of that, we know it's because of you know what's happening in this country, what's going on around us, and we, and we wanted to be a part of it. And so we started talking about, well, you know, what can we do? Well, you know, how can we do something? Um, and uh, as Wanda always says, you know, we're of a certain age, and we certainly are not going to get out on the streets and uh, protest, you know, and especially with, uh, you know, with COVID. Uh, and, but we knew we wanted to do something. And I tell uh, women, young women, women all the time, people, I guess, that, you know, we forget in the midst of our troubled mind what agency we have. So we, Wanda and I started talking, and I said, well, maybe we can write something. We talked about writing maybe an op-ed page piece. And uh, then we started talking about maybe essays or something. And, and as we talked, we said, well, you know, well, you know, we could do a book. And it finally came to me. It was so ridiculous. I haven't thought of it before. I, said, I have a publishing company. Jonathan, I had forgotten <laughs> in the midst of everything. I, I actually hit myself in the head, you know, with my palm. I have a publishing company. Oh, my goodness. And she said, okay, you know, what would, you, what would it be? And from that that's how that's how you know that's how it came to be and on that june day by the time we finished that conversation oh, we that, i was just going to say a wonderful conversation we knew that we wanted to write a, a book we published a book of essays it was going to be published by my publishing company we insisted that it be published in 2020 because of the importance and the impact of that year um, and we wanted to address uh, things that were going on, especially race, culture, and community that were going on right now. And by the end of the conversation, we said, well, you know, it's going to be a book and, uh, you know, a number of essays. Let's make it all African-American people, uh, African-American women. We said, okay, that's good. You know, we, we kept trying to narrow it down to get the focus so pinpoint, you know, small that it was that it was very clear what we were doing, very focused about what we were doing. But by the end of the conversation, Jonathan, it was amazing. You know, we had decided that, you know, we hadn't decided on the people, but, you know, we knew that this is what we were going to do. And by the end of the conversation, there was no doubt in either of our minds that that this is what we were called to do and that this was going to happen, even though it was a short period of time. It was already June. And, and, and you you know, and people who are listening, though, probably know it takes a long time to get a book out, at least a, a year or sometimes to even turning it in. Yeah. And now we're talking about let me just let me just let me just interject. You know, when I submitted my manuscript in the spring of 2019, it was almost a year before I got a book in my hand, and I and I, I had that in mind. I said to Tina, I just can't imagine that we could work on this book and not expect to get it out to the world until 2021 because this is such a momentous year. So I was really using my own experience with my one and only. Um, book that I did by myself <laughs> to say, uh-uh, that's well, not Jonathan, good enough. On, on, top of, 
on top of that, I was using, you know, my 40 years experience of knowing, no, there's no way that you can do this. So even in my head, I was thinking, okay, this is really, really a stretch. But but I'm telling that I guess all of that is to say, Wanda, that in the face of that, we knew that this book was going to happen. We knew that this was what we were we were called to do. And if I if I can, and Wanda and I and I had worked on a book on, uh, you know, on the the uh, uh, publicity for for her book. So we knew we worked well together. It was the first time we had ever. This was the first time we've ever, we've ever worked on anything, Jonathan. If you can believe that. Okay, I want to read just a little bit, if I may. Wanda, do you want to add anything to the? To the no, I'm waiting to hear what you're going to read. Please. <laughs> okay. <laughs> we en- this is from my introduction, Jonathan. We envisioned this volume, these essays, as a balm and rallying cry for our nation's weary souls. As the editors, we wanted to offer real stories and real suggestions for going forward. Our process for choosing the essays was similar to our plan for the collection or for the for the collection, organic. We started by discussing the topics we wanted to cover. Then we talked about whose clear, steady voices we wanted to include. I have to admit, it was heady stuff, this discussion about women whose work we would read and admired and wanted to, to share. I'm sorry, this discussion about women whose work we read and admired and wanted to share. And so we reached out to our sisters. And like the women in Cynthia St. James' evocative image on the cover of the book, which the artists contributed, essays came together at our table. Wanda and I share the belief that there are many tables in which we Americans should pull up a chair or bring one, preferably a folding chair, as outstanding African-American political pioneer Shirley Chisholm instructed us. Bring a chair. However, just how does one ask folks with careers and businesses and plans, partners and parents and children to pull up a chair to our table to add one more commitment to their must-do list in a time of pandemic? To trust Wanda and me enough to agree wholeheartedly to contributing an essay about, I'm sorry, contributing an essay when our book was merely an idea that we that we planned in June to be published before the end of the year 2020. A, complete, a completely insane idea for a small independent publisher like mine, Down South Press. Just how? The answer. We got to work. It's a leitmotif in this book, and for the people in it, we got to work. It's what is known as black girl magic. Beautiful, powerful passage. And it really is nothing short of miraculous to have not only have a book out in six months, but to have a beautifully written, beautifully designed book such as this one. And with the kinds of contributors that that you've just described, folks who are busy and powerful and in demand and decision makers and and that they were we we reached out we reached out to Atlanta. We reached out to Atlanta Mayor uh, Keisha Lance Bottoms. As you can see, we, you know, our enthusiasm knew no bounds. We, you know, we reached out to her. She was on to, she followed me on Instagram, and, you know, they used Tina Malcolm. We used Tina Malcolm until we couldn't use her anymore. You know, do you read Tina Malcolm's book? Well, Tina Malcolm is the editor of this. You know, we, we used what we got. We used what we got. 
And you mentioned the you mentioned the design, Jonathan. First of all, yes. one of the first people we reached out to to write an essay was the visual artist Cynthia St. James, someone who's um, you know has an international presence. And I had become familiar with not familiar with her. I'd become friends with her just over email and social media in the past couple of years. We've just been having some wonderful conversations. And so I sent her a note immediately and said, you know, we're doing this. Would you consider writing? And she was working on her own book and on deadline. She said, I just don't have time because I've got to get my own book and I'm on a deadline. But we will. Sh- I will share with you a couple of my um, pieces of art, and you can select one and for your cover. And so that's how the cover came about, by her donating the cover to us, and then Tina reached out to Paula Wallace, who's the president of SCAD, Savannah College of Art and Design, who became one of her biggest supporters during the publication of her last book and the launch of her publishing company, um, Taken After Madeer, and uh, Paula was excited about it and turned us immediately over to some key people at Savannah College of Art and Design, and they designed the cover, they, you know, they put the, the words on the cover that, on the art that Cynthia St. James donated, and they designed the inside of the book. They did, they, and, and they helped us launch, they did a soft launch, pre-launch in October, a month before the book came out. And, and you know, using some SCAD students to read uh, passages from the book. So they were very supportive. So we just got support from all over the place. And you're right, the design is gorgeous. We had to pay a designer later to do the book after the essays were done, but SCAD gave us the the final for the design. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It it is exquisite, and it sounds like it's meant to be the way the pieces kept aligning for you. The St. James cover is extraordinary, and I was going to ask if it had been done specifically for the book because it's sort of perfect thematically for the book, but uh, how how wonderful that it is already. We looked at at both of the pieces Cynthia gave us, and, you know, this one, this cover just jumped out because it's a collection of women, and they have, you know, different hues, different colors of their, their skin tones, and different colors of the clothing they are wearing, and it just says so much about coming together. Hair is different. Some of them have real short hair, white hair, dark hair, long hair, um, natural hair. So, you know, it was just perfect for for the book, and um, it it just works. And then SCAD was able to take the yellow, the beautiful yellow cover from the background of the picture and wrap it around the book to the back. So it's just a a beautiful piece of work. You know, it's something that people would just want to have in their house. You know, I may, someday I'm thinking I may get a poster of it and put it on the wall because it's just so beautiful, and it just says so much about the meeting at the table that we have created. It really does. It does indeed. It's it's, it's free. Let's take that as a off point to talk about the title and and what you really mean by this. What what does it mean to have a meeting at the table within the context Mm -hmm. of this book? Well, you know, Jonathan, um, in, in my career, one of the things I have been an advocate for is diversity. And as part of that, I've done a lot of training of what I call conversations about race. I have worked in, I've I've gone to newsrooms all over the country. I've trained not only the journalists in the newsrooms, um, in in the company I work for and other companies, but also the um, the people in the community. I have trained people to hold the newspaper accountable for having these conversations about race and about auditing 
their newspaper for diversity to make sure that, that, that there is accountability for for reflecting the entire community. And so as I think about the, the conversations about race, we started talking about meeting at the table. And I honestly don't know who came up with meeting at the table. It might have been Tina. It might have been me. Tina, do you remember whether it was you or me? <laughs> don't ask me that. Because, yeah. Okay, I won't ask you that. But then, so so that's where the meeting at the table came from. But But really, we started with that conversation about, you know, that discussion about conversations about race and how important that is. And then, um, and, you know, you have to think about what is, a, what is the table? The table can be whatever, whatever your table is. It can be a, a table in the kitchen with your family. It can be a table in your church social hall. It can be a table in your classroom or in your workplace. It can be a table at your neighborhood association. But what we want people to do is think about the meetings that they can have around their own table, have these conversations about race. You know, don't be shy about asking questions and having somebody answer those questions. Invite people from diverse backgrounds to have your own meeting at the table. And recently, Tina and I have been laughing because a couple of times I've had some, I mean, recently, like in the last two or three weeks, some kind of racist things said to me in my own community, and I called Tina. I said, Tina, I need to have a meeting at the table. You will not believe what this woman just said to me. <laughs> so we hope that this will pick, you know, that, that it will catch on, that people will say, we need a meeting at the table. And basically what we hope people will do is get together, talk about our differences. You know, this country is so polarized. And especially over the last few years with everything going on politically and economically and then COVID. I mean, just look at the racial disparities with the, with the you know, the healthcare system and, and how so many people of color either are getting sicker or are not getting the, um, the medical attention they need. And, you know, and now there's a suspicion and the history. that and the history of that, but there's also a suspicion that there's also a suspicion that, you know, certain communities aren't getting the, the vaccine in, in, you know, in equitable ways. And I fear that that's also happening. And people people are not getting the vaccine because they're afraid of the history. They talk about, you know, the, the syphilis uh, study at Tuskegee. They talk about so many other times when uh, black people were allowed to get sick. You know, the people who don't economically don't have good health care end up dying from, from lung cancer and all kinds of, of other diseases because they're not first in line to get the right medical care. So, you know, this having these meetings at the table will give people um, really a, a, a title. I call it a headline because, you know, my background in newspapers, but really a headline for how to start these conversations. Create your own table. One of the uh, places that you invited me to speak, Jonathan, was at a church in on Hilton Head, First Presbyterian Church in Hilton Head. That's right. You know, yeah. that was kind of a meeting at that was a meeting at the table, you know. Not only did I talk about my memoir coming full circle, but we talked about race. And I did that at another church, predominantly white church in Savannah. And we do all this on Zoom. I mean, you know, I I'm I'm loving Zoom. A lot of people are tired yeah. of it, and I guess I'm tired of it to some extent. Oh, we baby boomers. Zoom, Zoom. I'm not going anywhere. I'm not getting on anybody's plane. I'm not sleeping in. I'm not oh, sleeping please, in anybody's hotel. We don't have to mm-hmm. go. We don't have to get on the planes. We don't have to carry yeah. no luggage. Oh, man, yeah. We're loving mm-hmm. this. We're loving this. Yeah. I think it's um, wonderful that you're being invited to so many virtual 
tables that, that there are audiences, whether they're church congregations or otherwise, that welcome mm-hmm. this, that wants to do better, be better, and, and really another voice in the conversation rather than just the echo chamber of the experiences they may be having to, to open their eyes and their hearts. And, and what wonderful, you know, for lack of a better term, what a wonderful toolkit this book is in that regard, too. What a point of entrance is to, to meeting at the table. Yeah. So I'm delighted you know, to hear you know, one of the things that... Okay, I was just going to say one of the things that, uh, two things that, that uh, Wanda was really insistent on because she has spent her life, you know, uh, uh, I was going to say fighting for diversity, but working uh, toward diversity. And uh, we had both when we started talking, we actually had both gotten phone calls from uh, white friends who were saying to saying, what were they saying, Wanda? Well, they were saying to me, oh, my God, this is after the death of George Floyd, where we saw, you know, literally life being snuffed out of a man in eight minutes and 46 seconds. So people were calling me or emailing me or texting me saying something like, oh, my God, I had no idea that all this racism you've been talking about all these years is this bad. So all of a sudden, a light bulb went off, and people were realizing that that the doubts they had about the severity of racism were unfounded. That racism is, you know, still with us, and it's bad enough. And an everyday thing, I think, an everyday thing for for uh, people of color, and that's something that you know is a hard we found is a harder pill to swallow because then you have to, you know, take responsibility, you know, for, for that privilege that you have or for things that things that has happened or at least the responsibility of exploring it. And uh, I've been, I got the same kinds of phone calls and that was really one of the uh, the impetus that was one of a impetus for, uh, for the book. Wanda was insistent that each essayist at least consider the idea of offering a way out of where we were, offering a way forward from where their story ends. I, I, I'm of the, uh, the belief that nobody cares about anything if, that they read unless, about, unless there's a story, unless there are people in it. You know, you care about zoning meetings, uh, Wanda, because, you know, that's going to affect people. You know, it's all people are at the root of this. So we knew that with the essays that, you know, oh, God, that agreed to do this. But so we knew they had the stories. We knew most of them we knew were wonderful writers because some writers were more experienced than others among our essays. And uh, so we knew that they could do it, and we knew that this was something uh, that was even being called for now. So Wanda wanted each of the essays to at least consider uh, offering some kind of way forward. And I think that that's a, a wonderful element of this this book. It's not just stories about what happened. It's definitely not woe is me. It's stories of empowerment, stories of discovery, stories of enlightenment in our lives that I hope in the lives of African-American people that I hope, um, you know, clicks, clicks, you know, that same awareness in the reader. They all feel very personal, very intimate, very immediate. I noticed uh, almost immediately reading through them. For example, Mayor Bottoms' piece, which is entitled A Prayer for My Children, is really almost a prayer to, to her children. She's speaking directly to mm-hmm. her children by the end of that essay. She started, she started yeah. as a letter to my children, and it evolved mm-hmm. into a prayer 
for my children because she's she has what three boys I believe of her four children. Three boys and, and a girl. Uh-huh. Yeah, and she's worried about them for a good reason. When you see so many young black men who are charged with crimes that they didn't commit or were just just living, you know, we 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 in the black community we sort of kind of laugh about it, although it's very serious. You know, it's not just driving while black, it's walking down the street while black, it's walking to the store, you know, from the store with a, with a bag a of Skittles and, and, and an ice cream. Yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, yes, watching birds. It's, it's, you know, whatever we do, we're doing it while black, but we're just living. And and then someone comes along and, and accuses us of doing something illegal, or our boys especially, or our young men especially. Oh, so, you know, we've um, seen somebody she, being killed on camera. We know, we know that you know some some black boys aren't going to get home. You know, at the end of the day, it's a, this is, you know, it's, I don't have a son, but it's a, a terrible thought even that you have to even consider that kind of thing in raising your child in America. And I think it's a talk, again, you know, that we talk about too. It's the talk, you know. We said you, people are now hearing that black families sit down mm-hmm. and have a talk with their children and tell them you got to be home by the time the street lights are on. You can't. You got to if you get stopped by the police, put your hands on the steering wheel and hold them hold them up high so they can see them. You know all the things that we say to our children when they leave the house, and it doesn't stop when they turn eighteen. You know it it continues for the for the rest of the time we're parents that that talk continues. My daughter is 38. I'm still having a talk sometime with her. It it just goes on and on and on. Well, I think that will be eye-opening to many readers who've never had this kind of meeting at the table that there really is ultimately no protection, no immunity. This is a theme that that shows up in many of the essays. Anika Noni Roses is a good example of that. A Disney princess, an iconic figure mm-hmm. who is who is by no means by virtue of, of her fame and notoriety, immune from the, the risks and, and the damage of racism. This and this shows up in your essay as well, Wanda. This is something that you speak very honestly about in your essay also. Well, you know, Jonathan, um, it's very clear to us that a lot of people look at people like Tina and me and say, oh, they've had a good education, they've had a good career, they live in a nice neighborhood, and you must not be, you know, prone to racism. But the the answer is, yeah, we are prone to racism. The other thing that's come up since my memoir is some people have asked me when I've done presentations, well, what did you leave out of the book, you know, because there's so many stories in my memoir. And as I thought about writing this essay, and the first thing I wanted to do was think of a story that I hadn't told in writing. And it's a story that I experienced fairly recently in 2013, but I didn't want a lot of people to know, especially white people to know. Sometimes we're just embarrassed to tell people how bad things are. And so I want to read a little bit of, of the beginning of my essay which is entitled, and Tina, Tina named it this because I had a different title. It's called Racism dot 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 WTF. And you know what WTF stands for. On the day my husband, exclamation point, question mark. Yeah, exclamation point, exclamation point. So it starts like this. On the day my husband and I moved into our house in a mostly white neighborhood in Savannah, Georgia, as soon as the last piece of furniture was in place and the big moving van pulled away, someone rang our doorbell. I assume the van driver forgot to uh, to leave an item behind. My husband and I both made our way through a sea of unopened boxes as we approached the front door. There stood a white police officer. Was this the welcome wagon? 
I'm Officer Harvey, he said. We got a call that someone was in this house. I'm just here to check it out. And then I wrote, WTF. As African Americans, we have fearful memories that some white police officers may pay excessive attention to us when they consider that we may be out of place in our mostly white community, even though it was quite apparent to anyone who looked for more than a minute on that day in 2013 that the movers were bringing in items into not taking things out of the house on the corner of a busy <laughs> midtown street. On that day, there was no hidden agenda. A black family was moving in. I grew up in Savannah in the 1950s and the 1960s, during and shortly after a period when Jim Crow laws dictated the neighborhoods where black people lived, how we shopped, the limits on our opportunities for education, jobs, and shopping, the separate social and cultural experiences, even cemeteries that were designated as black family members' final resting place. The word colored was one of the first words some of us had to learn to read to assure that we knew how to use the correct water fountains and toilets instead of those marked white. As black people growing up in the Deep South, we were expected to stay in our place, and we rarely dared to have conversations with people who were not like us, except perhaps for blacks who worked in service jobs that required cursory conversations. My family owned or ran businesses that catered only to black clientele. The educators in my family only taught black children during that period. What a burden it must have been for our parents and grandparents to worry every time their young folk would leave home or leave the safety of our modest but familiar neighborhoods. Even in the mid-century of the 1900s, our elders bore the emotional aftermath of slavery and the time immediately after when black people were still considered to have second-class citizenship. As burdensome as that time was and still is to a great extent, we are always reminded of the hard-won joys and lessons of our culture and our communities. I grew up in a community, my village I call it, of people who taught us the customs and culture of our Africanness, the music, the poetry, the beauty, the passion and pride of being descendants of people who came to this country with rice in their pouches, skills in their heads, and hope in their hearts. We pass these cultural icons on to our children. In Savannah, rice is still a staple on our plate. Thank you, Wanda. It's, it's beautiful. That was, that was lovely. Too. Yes. Absolutely. And honest and forthright in, a, in a way that these conversations need to be it really you know, is Jonathan, you bring, to bring that up that's interesting because it i think people sometimes i think people reading this these essays will feel the honesty and feel the transparency uh but i think people don't realize how difficult it is to write about something so mm-hmm. personal as race you know to make yourself exposed to tell stories that you know that You've kept hidden, buried away somewhere because they were so terrible. They were so, you know, awful that you didn't want to share them with anybody. You want to burden anybody else with them. There is a vulnerability to that, Tina, as you say, and that sort of shines mm-hmm. through in, in all of the essays. It really does make you feel like you, the reader, are, are being invited into a conversation. Uh, and I think that's such a great strength of the book. 
Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I applaud the essayists for doing that. Indeed, and and to have done it in such a short period of time too sort of makes it all the more remarkable. But I'm curious about we, what each of you uh, brought to this as co-editors as these essays came in. What was the experience like for each of you to receive sure. those to respond to them? Sure. Well, you know, interesting. We we did all of our editing on the phone and on Zoom. A lot of it on Zoom. Um, I, I early on is right after my my book tour was canceled for coming full circle. I invested in a paid Zoom account so that I could continue to do, present the book and not have to worry about whether people had a paid account. And so, you know, all of a sudden, like Tina remembered, oh my gosh, I have a publishing company. I went, oh my gosh, I have a paid Zoom account. And so we used that account to reach out to our our essays, and and we we edited them line by line. We, you know, Tina and I have both been newspaper editors. Tina's been editing books for a long time. And so some of our writers were exclaimed that they had never been edited as thoroughly uh, individually like what they got, you know, the editing they got with us sitting and going and, you know, we shared their essays. We were looking at them together on, on Google Docs where they could see the changes that were being made in real time. And we challenged them to think about every phrase, every sentence, every word. We would sometimes take five or ten minutes to figure out, well, what is the right word? This is not quite – this uh-huh. word needs to – this verb needs to have more action. It needs, This word needs to be more descriptive. Is this the right word? And so some of the Jonathan, writers – Jonathan, I'm a big posted person, and I still yeah. find words on posters on the floor and all around that have fallen off the walls because we would think about this word, and when we would come up with it, oh, it would be like celebration time, you know. You'd write it mm-hmm. down, and, you know, we call, and then we'd have more conversations. The joy – one of the joys of this book, Jonathan, was the editing process. Don't you think, Wanda? It was the editing process with the writers because some of them, you know, asked us to help edit some other things for them after the book. And and also the joy was that Tina and I would get on Zoom until late into the night and we would read the essays together. And we did some of the essays jointly. I think it's a process that probably has never been done before. But I just remember my days working at USA Today and some other newspapers where I literally sat down next to the reporter. And, you know, we just went line by line. And that's the process that we transferred from journalism to, um, to putting this book together. Yeah. What a wonderful we experience that you have shared, too. The, Oh my goodness! It has it has deepened our relationship in so many ways. I'm looking at a poster on the wall now that says Tina and Wanda's superpower. Our superpower <laughs> is Jonathan. Jonathan, this is good. Now listen to this. I'm on the poster. Now, uh, uh, in the middle of the poster, go to the right and with a line, and then make it an arrow. Okay. Then go back to the middle of the poster and, and get a little space, and then do the same thing all the way to the left and make a line. And in the middle, write a star. And that will we'll write, you know, when those lines meet where we started, that's our superpower. Instead of, we started pulling at each other. Wanda is Google and I'm Doc. Wanda, uh, you know, likes to do things this way. I like to do them that way. You know, we finally stopped. We learned early on to stop pulling against each other. And when we pull together, that little spot, pow, that's our superpower. Because we did it the same way. Wanda thought that maybe 20, 20, I thought maybe 20 essays would be. And Wanda said, no, 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 let's, you know, we have a short period of time. Let's concentrate on, you know, 
Yeah, the Riona Sakina. That's the Riona Sakina. And I said, and she said, well, maybe a two, a dozen, you know. And I said, twelve. And so we ended up with fifteen. And that pretty much explains how we got this book done. You know, instead of me pulling and trying to pull her to, you know, to, to twenty and and trying to explain why twenty is better and all the rest of it, you know, I listened to what she said and eased up a little bit and she eased up a little bit. So you know, we didn't have a lot of back and forth and decision making. And if she made the decision. You know, Wanda is the smartest woman I know. I know she made the right decision. If she needed, you know, my, my influence or my help or, you know, my input, that, you know, that's fine. And, and we did it the same way. And Wanda did it the same way. So, we, you know, we're blessed to have had this long friendship. And, this, uh, you know, we've been, we've been practicing for this for 50 years, Wanda. <laughs> that's right. That is true. That is true. Well so, you know, we, had, we had this friendship. It, it, was, it, it was quite uh, good. But I do tell people about the superpower thing because, uh I think, you know, uh, I wish I'd, I'd known it about 10 years before I was married. Um, the, 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 you know, pulling in different directions gets you nowhere, but, you know, really, really appreciating each other's power and each other's point of view uh, is something that I think we, we, we did and we respected and it, it really paid off. And we're, still, and we're still doing it. I mean, we're still having some conversations about the business of, of, you know, this book and how we're getting it out. And sometimes we still are compromising, just like a marriage, you know, we say, okay, well, I see your point now. Let's just go with that. We, I think we did it today. There was a conversation we had just as recently as we did. today. So it's still working. Mm-hmm. It's still working. I imagine it'll continue to work for a long time to come. You do seem to have a superpowered friendship, as you say. That's and so, I have so, so enjoyed this hour together. We're uh, we're running uh, into our last few minutes here. I wish we had more time than we do. So let me take a, a few minutes here at the end to explain what you all are doing very generously very soon for our Conroy Center. So our listeners can sign up for that if they're interested. And I expect very much they will be. Coming up on March uh, 4, 6, and 7, the Conroy Center will host our fifth annual and first virtual March 4th, which is a program about social justice and storytelling and conservation, all themes very dear to Mr. Pat Conroy. And this is a a program that we created to commemorate the anniversary of uh, Pat's death, which uh, was never really intended to be a day of mourning. It was always intended to be a day of education, honoring Pat's legacy as teacher. And that's what March 4th has been about. It's been just an absolute pleasure to put this program on each year. And y'all are very kind to participate in two ways, one of which the public can attend. On Sunday, March 7th, as the closing panel of March 4th, uh, from 3.30 to 5, you all will be having a virtual meeting at the table, and you'll be joined in with two of your contributors, Regina Bradley, famed hip-hop scholar, and uh, Disney legend Anika Noni Rose, who, of course, voiced Tiana, the first African-American Disney princess in the film Princess and the Frog in 2009. And folks can still sign up for March 4th for the whole slate of programs, all nine of them, by going to our Eventbrite page, which is patconroyliterarycenter.eventbrite.com or to the Conroy Center Facebook page. But in addition to that public program, you all are also going to participate in a second program on March 3rd that's being hosted by the Beaufort County School District as a program for their leadership team, about 50 educators and administrators who are now reading Meeting at the Table. They picked up their copies uh, just yesterday, I believe, and you'll be doing uh, a magical Zoom conversation with them. Joined 
by two other March 4th presenters, Bakari Sellers, who a lot of folks know from CNN Mm -hmm. uh, in South Carolina. We certainly know him as our youngest ever state representative and as the son of civil rights icon Cleveland Sellers, previous keynote speaker at March 4th. And you're also being joined by Dr. Drew Lanham, an environmentalist, uh, poet, memoirist, recently winner of the E.O. Wilson Award for Biodiversity Education and creator of the viral video Rules for the Black Birder. Uh, Drew has been a part of four out of five March 4th. This is a program that's very dear to him as well. And I can't thank you all enough for doing both of those things for, for both the public event for March 4th and this program for the school district as well. It's really generous of you terms of your time and your words and and those are the the two most valuable inventories any writer has so it's a tremendous kindness <laughs> from both of you uh to, to commit to march forth in these ways so in our last well, Jonathan, couple we, are so, here, we are so excited so, about being a part of march forth so thank you I'm well i have so to say jonathan after Please. after uh, wanda met you uh doing her you know in, in doing her publicity for uh for her coming full circle uh, she would come back and say something. Well, you know, I heard from Jonathan, and so around around here we say Jonathan is a gift that keeps on giving. So we're <laughs> we're happy we're happy we're happy to support you and the center in this. <laughs> oh, y'all are very very kind. I really appreciate that. I think the real gift is the two of you. You seem to keep giving as well, and I'm so appreciative of that. Well, where can folks quite get copies of Meeting at the Table? Let's close out with that thought. Let's send folks in search of a very good book so they can have their own meetings at the table. Where is this available, Tina? This is available at downsouthpress.com. Downsouthpress.com, yes. And, uh, again, if someone wants to be in touch with us, we do have a, 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 a email address, and it's downsouthpress1 at gmail.com. That's the one on the end of it, downsouthpress1 at gmail.com. If you'd like more than the, the number of books that you can get at one time on the, on the, the website, you know, we'll be happy to uh, package them up and sign them up and send them off to you. And we'll find, you know, we'll, and we can pay in any number of ways. So it's either downsouthpress.com where you can order the book uh, and uh, buy the book and or you can get in touch with us at downsouthpress one at gmail.com and tell us what you want. Jonathan, we are so excited that book clubs and other organizations are ordering books and reading them together and inviting us to have these meetings at the table with them. We're in conversation with other organizations like yours um, that are also doing the same thing for their, their listeners. So we just appreciate all the support we're getting from the community for meeting at the table. So thank you. Sure. There is a women's group in Beaufort uh, that one of our volunteers at the Conroy Center is a part of, and she just picked up a bunch of copies from me today. Her, her group is reading the book right now, and I'm so glad to hear that Wonderful. our groups are doing the That's same. That's great. Yes. So I, yes. I look forward to seeing both of you again real soon, about a week and a half at March 4th. And again, I want to thank you so much for being on our Live from the Pat Conroy Literary Center podcast here this evening. And everybody out there in Radio Land, please take care. Thank you. It's our joy.